I read a story this week in the Los Angeles Times. And even though it was a story that took us back to around the year 1450, it really like made me sick to my stomach when I was reading this story. Uh, And I'm going to try to navigate it very briefly here for you uh, and gently for you. But a few years ago, uh, a group of archaeologists in Peru discovered this site uh, where they had found about 140 children that had been sacrificed. Uh, They'd been sacrificed in about 1450, all sacrificed, and it looked like they were all sacrificed on the same day, basically at the same time. At this site, 140 children, uh, three adults, and 200 plus llamas. Uh, And the article, the writer said this, the writer was Deborah Netburn, um, and she said this, the sacrificial victims ranged in age from 6 to 14 and appear to have been killed in a well-planned and choreographed event on a single horrific day. The details of the article were very grim. You can read it for yourself if you want. I won't get into it for the sake of all of our stomachs. But it messed with me a lot when I was reading this. And I I couldn't help but wonder why. Why? Why would anybody do that to their own child? Why would anybody do that to any child? The article uh, said it was very, it was unknown as to, not much was known about the religion of the the tribe that this took place in. But from the conditions, uh, it appeared Uh, It it had happened during a time of very heavy, heavy rain, unceasing rain. It just kept raining and raining, which would have very severely hurt their economy. And the sacrifice was likely a way of them negotiating with the powers that they believe controlled the weather, giving up what was most valuable to them in order that they may secure a future for their own selves and for everyone else who would come after them for the rest of the people in their family. Now, these things are usually tied to religion. They're usually tied to this idea that God is angry or the gods are angry. And the only way to appease the gods is to give up the thing that's closest to your heart to show the gods that you're loyal to them and that, uh, that, that they may have mercy on you. See, the idea of hell is a very scary idea. And this idea has caused people for centuries to do crazy things to try and avoid it. In an effort to avoid it, in fact, many people have caused it. But the problem with the entire concept of sacrifice is we give up something, like we make this sacrifice, and then when it's over, we don't actually feel any different. We make the sacrifice, and the rain doesn't stop. Because the reality is nothing actually changed. So we think, okay, that didn't do it. I got to give God more. So we make another sacrifice, something that means a little bit more to us, maybe something that we love. Maybe it's something we should give up in our day. Something we, we know is not God's best for us, and, but we do it thinking, if I give this up, it will get me closer to God. As our way of, if, like, if that's kind of the way that we do it to quit, right? If your motive for sacrificing something is the result that it will bring you spiritually, the result as far as your relationship with Jesus, what is, 
what is almost guaranteed to eventually happen. You're, you're on a trajectory for this. It's bound to happen. Is You're going to live your life with this thought constantly in your head of saying, I gave up this for God? I gave up this for, for what? For what? And how long does that even last? How long do you serve a God who you believe made you sacrifice your child? Before you realize a God, a God like that is whack. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. And now I've got to live my entire life without my child. Obviously, in our context, it's much different than it would have been uh, in their context. Uh, But if you come to Jesus that way, thinking, if I just give up enough stuff, God will love me, or God will let me into heaven, or God won't send me to hell, whatever it is, how long will it be before you decide, well, my life is better without God? There's this moment in the book of Micah. And the question that's being asked in the book of Micah here in this section in Micah uh, 6 is, uh, what sacrifice will be enough? What's going to be sufficient for God? And this is what they ask. They say, uh, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil, if we kill every single animal on the farm? Will that get through to God? Then it goes so far as to say, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? It's this willingness to do anything. I mean anything to save your soul, to alter your circumstances, to attain the favor of the Lord in your life. But all they're doing is they are buying a false sense of security, all the while now having to live without these things that meant the most to them. But the answer that we find in Micah to the question of what does the Lord require is actually much different than what the people thought. And this is pre-Jesus. Remember this, guys. I keep telling you guys this, but the gospel has always been true. This is what it says in Micah. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He's saying you've made your entire lives and your entire experience with God about the things that you give up thinking that that's going to get you closer to God and thinking that that's going to bring God closer to you and all of the things that you sacrifice. But every time that you make a sacrifice, it's only going to take a moment before you realize, I have to make another sacrifice. Because your life, if your life is fueled by the things that you give up, you're going to always, there's always going to be more to give up. Try this. Try doing justice. Try walking humbly with, you're trying, try doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God. Versus do justice. Be quick to pick up those who have fallen. Be a voice for the voiceless. Stand in the gap for the people who are broken. I really want to make sure you guys understand something about this, about justice, because I've talked a lot about justice, and I think sometimes people get a bit confused. What do we mean by justice and by doing justice? It does not say do punishment, okay? It does not say do punishment. Your job is not to bring retribution to those who have done harm in the world. Your job is not to bring retaliation to those who have done wrong to your world. 
It also does not say do judgment. We talked the last couple weeks about Paul has a lot to say about the people who judge one another. He, he built this case in Romans 1 by showing us you're all on this list. And then he begins chapter 2 by showing us if you think you're not on the list and that because you're not on that first list, you're better than the people that are on the list, you're just as guilty. Paul makes it very, very clear we do not judge one another. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in uh, Matthew I believe it's Matthew 7, he says, the measure that you use, it will be measured against you. So the way that we try and judge others, thinking that we know their situation from the fraction of their lives that we see, the amount of judgment that we heap upon them will be a determining factor as to the weights that God uses to judge us. We said it like this a couple weeks ago, those who try to play the role of judge now will answer to the judge later for trying to impersonate him. That's not our job. So unless you're in a role where you're actually a judge or you work in law enforcement or whatever that actually involves that, your role is not to punish the guilty or to pursue the guilty or to go after the guilty. Your role is not to judge the guilty. Your job is to lift up the ones who have been hurt by the injustices of the world, the world's systems and its people. Your job is to stand up for them with hopes that those injustices done to them will not continue. You stand as a wall between them and the injustice, but you do not act as a retaliation to try and bring that justice to the guilty. You bring justice to the marginalized. Let God bring justice to the guilty. And it says love kindness. Kindness here is the Hebrew word said. Uh, it's one of our favorite, uh, favorite words here. It's a covenant word for God's covenant faithfulness. It's the picture of a, a mother swan who plucks out her own feathers and lines the nest so that her, uh, her offspring can be comfortable. So it's at, at her own discomfort she does that. It's an unwavering love that says, I will do anything for you. It's not sacrifice. It's different than sacrifice. It's like, hey, s- sacrifice is when you say, I'm going to do this thing, but I'm doing it for me. I'm going to give up this thing so that God will do this thing for me. This is selflessness, saying, hey, I will give up whatever I need to for you. Very, very different things. There's a very big difference between those two things. When, when Jesus, uh, Jesus quotes, uh, in, in Matthew 9, we talked about Matthew 9 two weeks ago when they say, uh, Jesus says, hey, it's not those who are sick, or it's not those who are well who need a doctor. It's those who are sick that need a doctor. He then says, he then quotes um, um, Hosea, Hosea 6.6, 6, and he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Or I desire, the word is said, not sacrifice. So Jesus says, you know what? I care much more about the person that you are becoming than I do about the things that you give up thinking that that's going to get you close to me. Again, you get the same concept here in Micah. Do you want to make your life about the things that you give up, or does God care more about who you are becoming? Do you cross to the other side of the road when you see the man beaten up on the side of the road because you don't want to deal with it? Or do you run to that person? Because we think the main thing that God cares about is the things that we do not do. We don't do drugs. 
We don't steal things. We don't hurt people. We fast. We pray. I think of Isaiah 58. Uh, We've done many sermons on Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I choose? These people in Isaiah are fasting, and they're fasting, and they're so frustrated with God because they're giving up all these things, and yet God does not hear them. And they're like, God, why can't you hear us? And they're like, okay, you want to know why I can't hear you? Because you're fasting, but you're not doing anything. You're giving up all this stuff, but like you're not taking the homeless poor into your house. You're not feeding the broken. It's like, hey, how about this? Fast bread and then give the bread to a homeless person or give the bread to somebody who's hungry. Give the bread to somebody who needs it. It's great that that so many people are fasting Facebook for Lent, right? That's awesome. But could possibly we also try to walk humbly with our God? Because quite frankly, it's been my experience that the people who give up the most tend to be the least humble about it. I am in that list. I am a recovering religious person who used to believe that he was better than other people because they did things and he didn't. That I, I, like, I didn't do that, you do that, so that makes me better than you. I, I, just being honest. There's nothing humble about that. That's messed up. (laughs) In ancient Hebrew, the word humble, it means to tear down the wall, to get rid of the things that make you think that you're better. On the contrary, pride in the ancient Hebrew, it means to lift up strength. It's placing your strength in yourself. Pride is the one thing that I truly believe can put up a wall between uh, you and Jesus that only humility can tear down. If you can't get humility down, that wall will never come down. Pride tells you you do not need the gospel, that you've accomplished so much on your own, that you're better than others, and it's not compatible with the gospel to live like that. You cannot think that you're okay and think that Jesus needs to work in your life all at the same time. But I truly believe that if we can get this humble part right, if we can walk humbly with our God, justice and kindness will fall into place. And you will live a life in which you can have the confidence that Jesus' blood is enough for you, because it is. And you can have the confidence to walk in the transformation of that gift of grace that God gave for you. So with that, we'll open Romans. I'll just control it on the screen today. Um, We're going to break this up into a few sections today. I'm not going to read, I'm going to read 3 through 16, but I'm going to read a little bit. Then I'm going to read a little bit more, and I'm going to explain a little bit and go on. I'm not going to read the whole chunk all at once. Uh, And... I want to kind of frame out for you, um, first of all, the reason why I don't think that this should scare us as much as it does. We need to take it seriously, very seriously, but I think that sometimes fear kind of creeps in and becomes the underlying reason that we respond, and that's evil. So this is what it says in verse 3. This is 3 through 5. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, briefly, before we move on, uh, we've read this a few times for the last few weeks, and we're going to... uh, 
uh, we're going to read this several times moving forward, but we read a lot about God giving people up to the lusts of their hearts. And we're going to get into that in the later chapter of Romans um, because we're going to get into some tricky language about the concept of uh, people hardening their hearts. I'm not going to dive into that right now, but it's kind of a big concept. It's a bit tricky and it's a bit scary. And this passage right here actually is one that's going to help frame that for us. So keep this in your mind. Verse 4 and 5 is talking about how people have these hard hearts. And God is, um, has given them um, those hardened hearts, and he's allowing sin to run their course in their lives. And we think, hey, what is going on there? But it's actually an act of mercy. It's mercy. Because the whole time, God's over here, and he's being patient, as we talked about. He's being patient. We sang about it, too. Uh, forbearing judgment and showing kindness. And that kindness exists to constantly remind us, hey, hey, I'm still here. I still love you. And I'm still on your side. He's lovingly waiting to sort of reach out to us uh, and find us in that place where we realize, wow, I need repentance. And see, God's not kind to us for no reason. He's kind to us so that we would actually turn around and we would actually repent. So many of us are very numb to the idea of needing to repent. We think we've created these lives that are as they should be, and rather than repenting, we just like to continue in them. But like we said, that's pride. It's prideful. It's the opposite of walking humbly with your God, and it is a very clear message that I don't need God. And by hardening your heart or giving you over to it or letting sin run its course in your life, it's actually the opposite that we think. We think it's, oh, you're giving up on people, but it's actually the opposite of that. What it's actually saying is God saying, hey, I will be right here. I'm still here. I'm with you. And one day it's going to click, and when it does, I will still be right here. Now, I just wanted to frame that for you very briefly before we get into that. Um, we're going to flesh that all out later in the series, but let's, we're going to really dive into six on. Six says this, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now notice again, self-seeking. There are people who look out for themselves. They're not caring about others. Uh, there's that word again, wrath. There's going to be wrath and there's going to be fury. We talked through wrath last week, but here's another word, right? Fury. Fury is another scary word. It's actually the word thumos, uh, which is, we talked about thumos a little bit ago. It, it can just mean the mind. It's as simple as the mind. Like we talked about uh, the word lust is epithumea, uh, and thumos is in that. It's in the mind. Uh, but thumos is actually used in a couple different ways uh, regarding things involving the mind. Yeah, and typically what it does is it paints a picture of somebody uh, who has something like something of an anger that's boiling up but soon subsiding again. It rises, but then it comes back down. It's also used to describe passion, like someone's literally, they're breathing hard. Like when you're passionate in a moment, right? When you're worked up or whatever it is, typically, uh, typically in, in the word is used in the form of like a just anger, like, hey, I should possibly be a little bit upset about this, something you shouldn't ignore, right? So you give something a lot of energy, but you don't stay there forever. You breathe heavy, but eventually that comes out, comes down. It doesn't stay boiled. But thumos actually comes from the word thio, which literally means to sacrifice. 
And now, this is just me talking. I haven't worked out all this, the, the ramifications of what this connection means. So this is just me talking. This is not like a scholarly thing. I didn't get this from anywhere else. But it's just some food for thought as I look at the way that this is all connected. The thing that so many people tend to do is, like I said, sacrifice, right? We tend to make our lives about getting, giving up something, changing something, thinking, hey, that's what we, it, that, you know, that's sacrifice. But the thing I kept coming up with is this, and this is what a lot of people seem to do, is we often make decisions to sacrifice, right? We make decisions to cut things off. We make decisions to change things. But we make those decisions when the water is still boiling, when we're not all there in our minds at that moment. Like when you're angry, uh, blood naturally redirects from your brain and you lose about 30 IQ points in that time. So, it's, so you're actually like less intelligent when you, because it's preparing your body for a fight. So the blood goes to other places to prepare you for a fight. Um, so, and so, so, so when you're not actually in your right mind in that moment, which is why sometimes people do some crazy things when they're really, really upset. But for so many people that I know, people tend to make the most life-altering decisions you could possibly make during times of frustration and during times of anger, instead of letting it subside first, right? It doesn't stop raining. Everything's getting destroyed. You aren't thinking clearly. What can we do to appease the gods? You're not thinking clearly. And then we're surprised when the world falls apart. Or why, when we get to wherever it is we set out to go, things aren't any different. Of course they're not. But here's the good news, is God does not do this. Another word that involves thumos that is used in this section is the word macrothumea. It's the word patience. Paul uses it here to describe God. God is patient with us through the times when our hearts are so hard and we're not turning to him. That's macrothumea. He is slow to anger. That's what the Bible says when, when, uh, when Israel does the, the golden calf thing. And God, uh, when Moses destroys the Ten Commandments and God has to kind of renew that covenant, what he says is, I am slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm abounding in hesed. And when something like injustice brings him to a boil, if you will, that boil subsides. He does not make decisions out of anger. Just like we learned about with wrath, it's part of his character. His heart is to bring the world back to the way that it was intended to be, and ultimately God will do that. And not everyone is going to be on the right side of that happening. That's very clear in the scriptures. Paul's very clear about that here. God is going to have to sort all of this out. But every time that Paul talks about God's judgment, he always calls it righteous judgment. Because what it is, is it's God making the world right. I'm moving along through this, and we'll spend more on this. This is verse 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So the idea is this. The Jews have been given the law 
and they're going to be judged according to the law which they have access to, to the Torah. Some others did not have access to the Torah, and they will not be judged by the Torah. But they still, in their hearts, have an instinct of what is right and what is wrong. And some of them actually are really good at doing what was right just because their conscience knows that they're supposed to do it. Paul talks about this earlier in Romans 1.20. He says that they have no excuse because they know you can look at creation and you can see from the foundation of the earth how beautiful it is. Obviously, there is a divine um, craftsman who's making all of this happen who put all this together. So just because they're Gentiles and they don't have the law doesn't excuse them, but they're not going to be judged according to it. But here's the thing that we need to catch, and in my view, we need to apply immediately. The Jews have the Torah. The Gentiles do not have the Torah. And yet the Jews are judging the Gentiles by the Torah. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Sure does to me. Christians often judge the world by standards that have been set for us. Paul spends the first five verses of chapter two on the issue of judging. And this idea that the world automatically should behave like Christians is absolutely absurd. The idea that we would measure a judgment against them based on that standard that's only going to push people away from the love of God because it shows people that we value our rules more than we value them as people. Before we even get to know someone, we judge them based on the way that they do or don't measure up to a standard that they're not even committed to following. We keep saying in, in, this, in this series, don't treat people as they deserve. Don't measure them on a scale that they have no ability or even a desire to live up to. Treat people as they are worth. Remember honor? It's a weight, kavod. When you honor someone, you show them that you value them and value is not determined by their actions or even the content of their character, but by their place in the family of God, their place as an image bearer in the world of God. If we all got what we deserved, the whole world would be empty. But the world is not empty because God's kindness and forbearance continues and should be leading us to repentance. So there's a phrase that Paul uses in this passage. And it's a, it's a kind of scary phrase. Jesus uses it a couple times too. Uh, and it's the phrase, on that day. On that day, the day of judgment, the day of wrath, whatever it is you want to call it, it's, it's nice to think that it will never happen, but Jesus, Paul, and all the other New Testament writers, they all seem to agree it's going to happen. There will come a day when God sorts out the world. And the question is, what will that be like? And to be honest, I, I don't know the answer to that question. There are a lot of other people who uh, believe that they do know it, uh, the, and the Bible certainly gives us all sorts of hints throughout the Bible about some of the things that will happen. One of them is in Romans uh, 2. We read it earlier when he says that uh, there's going to be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Uh, but for those who do good, there'll be eternal life. That's, that's a hint as to kind of what it's going to be like. But as far as all, what all that means and how that's actually going to play out, I can't give you the answer for, to that for sure. But one thing that I do know for sure when I read the Bible, it's very, very clear to me that for many people, it will come as a surprise. It'll come as a surprise. I think it would help us to gain a little bit more 
of a detailed understanding of what Paul is speaking of when he talks about judgment by looking at a couple of the times that Jesus himself speaks of that day and, and see if we can find some consistencies to sort of build off of. Um, now remember uh, what, what Paul says. Paul says we store up wrath for ourselves when we're what? When we're self-righteous. When we believe that on whatever merits that we've accomplished, that we've earned something. When we believe that we can stay the way that we are and we don't need Jesus to change us. And then obviously there's all sorts of stuff in Romans 1 also about uh, injustice. So that we have ungodliness, like us deciding, hey, you know what? We can live our lives without God and injustice when we do harm to God's world and his creation. So in Matthew 7 and in Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a couple different scenarios of people who will just be absolutely shocked at the results of the final judgment. And I want to show you just how in line both of these two stories fall into what Paul is saying about people who believe that they've earned it, that they, that they do the right thing. The first one is Matthew 25, um, 31 through 46. And Matthew 25 is probably the most famous passage about judgment because it's the moment in which Jesus, he, he separates the sheep from the goats. He puts the sheep on his right, he puts the goats on his left, and he, he divides them up based on how they responded to the least of these. Now, there are two conflicting views as to exactly who the least of these are that Jesus is referring to in this passage. Many scholars believe that the least of these are the messengers of the gospel. They're the children of God who are out doing the work of the ministry. And thus the argument is that how you treat God's children or his messengers is how you treat Jesus. And there's some contextual uh, merit to that argument. I believe there's contextual merit to either argument. But when I read the whole of the Bible, including some of the things that I shared with you today, I actually lean toward the other perspective. The other position on it is that it's referring to how we treat anyone, how we treat the person who can't do anything for us at all, no matter who they are. That is the demonstration of how we treat Jesus. Now, that certainly is a much more drastic reading of it. And the problem with that reading of it is if that is true, then it would seem that Jesus reserves the harshest judgments that he speaks of in the entire Bible for the people who don't feed the hungry, who don't welcome the stranger, who don't clothe the naked, who don't visit the sick and imprisoned, saying that whatever we did or did not do unto the least of these, we did not do unto Jesus. But whichever view is accurate, the same principle still applies. Think about the moments. And we all have had these moments when you did not let the stranger into your house, when you did not help the poor person when they were standing on the street corner in the snow on a five degree evening in February holding a sign that just said hungry when you know that you could have. You have to work against compassion to do that. You have to work against kindness and against justice. You have to work against something that was naturally placed in your heart by God to care for another human being. Really, it's just another example of a calloused heart like Paul talks about in Romans 1, 18 through 25. But when it comes to the issue of money, security, home, there's an added factor, particularly with money. The factor is, okay, I need this myself. Right? We, we, we have our own bills. We need the money for ourselves, which we justify that by saying, I earned this myself, which then leads to, I should keep this 
for myself. Because when we earn something, it creates a pride in us that convinces us that we were able to get there, wherever there is. If we just work hard enough, then one day we will have enough. Again, just like so many of the other things that we've been talking about, it is an anti-Christ. It's an anti-gospel message. And it's subtle enough that both those who did and who did not take care of the least of these, both respond to Jesus saying, Lord, when? When did we do that? When did we not do that? But this is why this story matters so much to the judgment narrative what we're trying to communicate here. Because Jesus ends that, that story by saying that those who did nothing for the least of these, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment. But he uses a very, very strange Greek word there. It's only used a couple times in the entire Bible. And the word for punishment that he uses there is the word colossus. He says, these will go away into eternal colossus. The writer John, in 1 John, he uses Colossus when he says fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with Colossus. That's why so many sacrifice. Because of fear. Fear of what will happen if they don't. It's why so many people get saved, but they never learn how to respond to the least of these and actually become kingdom-minded because they accepted the message out of fear of punishment with no real understanding of the fruit that comes when a decision is made out of love for Jesus. But get this. This is fascinating. The word colossus actually comes from a word that means to prune a tree. To prune a tree. The image is literally that of a farmer going out and pruning a tree, cutting off the bad branches, removing the stuff that's overgrown so that the tree can grow properly again. Removing the fruit that's taking up uh, the space on the branch, but it's not the best fruit. It came forth early and some of it was rotten or it just wasn't good enough. So he goes and he cuts off that fruit, leaving room in order that the best fruit can come forth. Remember, Judgment is about God restoring the world back to what he created it to be. And it is a good thing, not a bad thing. Because once that bad fruit has been pruned and cut off, the good fruit can come. But when you don't take care of the least of these, when people have to sleep on the street because nobody opened their home, because people went naked when others had dressers full of clothes, that is called injustice rooted ultimately in pride, and it is fruit that has got to be cut off the tree. It has got to go. Fast forward to Romans 2, 15 through 16. It says this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when... According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. First, I want us to explore this idea of the law written on their hearts. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time today on verse 16, which says that on that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So Paul's quoting Jeremiah 31 when he talks about uh, writing the law of God on your heart. And the reason that I think that this is worth noting is this. Jeremiah 
is also the writer who says that the heart is deceitful above all else. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So the question is, is it good or is it bad? Is the heart good or is the heart bad? And which which part's going to be judged, the deceived part or the part with the word written on it? The natural bend of the heart is to trick you into thinking that you know what you want. That's what it means when it says it's deceitful above all else. But the heart is actually extremely important. It's the wellspring of compassion and empathy and love for another person. And as we see here in Romans, he's quoting Jeremiah 31, but he he says that we can fill our hearts with God's word and we can actually do a lot of good with that. In in Luke 6, 45, Jesus tells us if our hearts are filled with good treasures, we'll produce good things. But if it's full of evil, we'll produce evil. We know that out of the overflow of what is in our hearts comes the things that we say and ultimately the way that we behave. So filling our hearts with the word of God is the very best way to combat the lies that will try to get in there. That's why we write the word of God on our hearts. But notice this, right? Notice what Paul says here. And really, it just proves that the heart is deceitful, that it wants to trick you and convince you of the things that you need. It says, the law is written on their hearts, yet while their conscience bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them on that day when God judges the secrets of men. Their thoughts are conflicting. They are confused. They're tricked. They're even making up excuses for themselves as to why they did the things that they did, trying to justify themselves for the things that they have done, trying to write these things off as okay. But listen, when we do evil, when we sin, when we practice ungodliness and injustice, it is not okay. It is a very bad thing. It is not something we should take lightly. It is something that we should repent of. But it's not about sacrifice. Sacrifice is something that we do thinking that we appease God by doing it and we think that it puts us in right standing with him so we don't have to go to hell. It is not about that. It's about image bearing. It's about realizing the parts of our lives that God wants to prune now, that he wants to cut off now so that he can use us now as his vessels of hope in our world that he is working to restore and one day will restore into its fullness. And all of the bad things that need to get cut off from our world today, we can do that now. We can live full lives now. Or... We can live with the fruit of an unpruned tree, not reaching our potential, not helping to make the world better, not bringing heaven to earth now. And then one day, when that day finally comes, God will have to cut off all the bad then because bad fruit cannot exist in a perfect world. And a perfect world is exactly what God intends to do with humanity. You can prune now and live full now and not have to live your whole life worried and in fear about what will happen to you that day. Do you see the difference? 
One way sets you up to live a life of love that looks a little bit more like Jesus to a world that needs him. But the other way keeps you in fear of what God will do to you for all that you've done. Repentance, true repentance is not an act of selfishness on your own behalf only designed to wash away your sins. It will do that, but it's supposed to be more than that. True repentance is an act of love, both on God's part and on your part. God's part because he is gracious and he is merciful to forgive you, but also on your part because it's also you turning around, pruning the bad fruit off right now so you can do more for the kingdom of God today. But our conflicting thoughts are trying to convince us that we do not need the pruning, that things are fine as they are. And it's a lie. In his first recorded sermon, Jesus begins by proclaiming, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the gospel in just a few brief, brief words. And what it means is simply this. Blessed are you when you realize on your own, there's no money in the bank. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't have what it's going to take. There's nothing I can do. I can't pay. I need somebody else to pay for me. He says, when you realize that, then you're blessed and then you get the kingdom of heaven. Because when you look at this list of all the things that Paul gives us, some of the things we've committed, others that we haven't, we know that ultimately the point is that everybody's here. We all find ourselves here. We all find ourselves on the bottom. Everyone deserves the punishment that God gives us. But the best news in the entire world, and you have got to catch this next couple of minutes, the, entire, the best news in the entire world is found in verse six, uh, 16 in this passage. Because it does not just say that God judges the secrets of men. It says that God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. Okay, there is no place in all of Paul's writing that is more scary than this, than this entire passage, 1 through 16 here. I would venture to say there's nothing in the entire New Testament that paints a more terrifying picture of a final judgment than the whole of this passage. And if Paul didn't give us such a strong proclamation of just what the gospel actually is in Romans 1, 16 and 17, then this could be really hard to navigate. But remember this, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And the progression goes like this, right? From 1.16, we get the gospel, then and really until 2.16, the way that he does this, he begins to lead toward this, this thing that basically builds off of this fact that the gospel is the power of salvation. But he, he frames this next section by talking about the glory of God and the image of God and all the stuff that we know that we've all traded. We've all made this exchange, We've called to reflect God one way, but we've exchanged that. The whole of humanity has done this exchange. And as a result of that, Paul shows us this list of everything that's happened and why we're all on it. And that's why we need Jesus. But think about this concept for just a minute. God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you can read this in a variety of ways. A very common understanding of this verse is that Jesus himself will simply judge the secrets of men. God will use Jesus to judge the secrets of men. And for every secret, everything you've ever hid, uh, God will punish you for that. That's one common reading of this. And I understand that approach to this, but that I read it very differently than that. The more I understand the grace of God, 
the more loaded with grace the Bible becomes to me. And this is exactly how I read this. When God judges the secrets of men, he's going to do it by Jesus Christ. When God judges the secrets of men, he's going to do it by judging Jesus Christ. Let me put this another way for you. In the, in the Supreme Court building, there are images of scales throughout the entire building, symbolizing what is known as the scales of justice. It's the concept of an impartial deliberation or weighing of two sides in a legal dispute. And it is a symbol of the pledge that each justice makes that they will indeed try the case fairly, and as the scales tip, so will the verdict. God is the judge. And he will judge each case fairly. And as the scales tip, so will the verdict. And there's a very common thought, which a lot of us love to say, of saying, man, I'm so glad that God judges my heart rather than my actions, right? People like to say that. God looks at the heart. I'm just glad about that. Are you insane? That is insane. That is ridiculous. Your heart has had far worse intentions than most likely anything that you've ever done. And anything that you've ever brought to life. That is almost for sure. Yes, maybe in your heart you desire to do some good things that you didn't do. Like, I wish I would have fed the homeless person. My heart was to feed him, but I didn't feed him. Like, yeah, you can say it like that. But that goes just as far the other way of all the crimes you wanted to commit and the sins you wanted to commit and the transgressions that you wish you could do, but you can't do because you just can't do it. Your heart is worse than the things that you would actually do in your real life. But if you read this passage, as God judges the secrets of men, and you think about your heart and you think about all that, you should be terrified unless you understand what it's saying about Jesus. Because when those scales tip and you put your sin on this side and you on this side, it's not even going to be close. You'll lose. You'll be on one side. You'll be guilty. Unless God judges your secrets by Jesus Christ. Unless God judges your secrets by the things that Jesus did. That is what makes justification so incredible. This is justification. And this is why Paul had to lay out this foundation before he got into ungodliness and injustice. Because justification means I declare you righteous. The heart behind it is that everything that you are, Jesus became on your behalf and he died for it. And because of that, you became everything that Jesus is. So when God passes judgment and he looks at that person standing in that courtroom waiting for a verdict, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. Because anything less would be a guilty verdict. The passage that brings the most clarity to this, I think, and this is the very last thing I'm going to do, is the other on that day passage that you get from Jesus in Matthew 7. It's a passage that has a tendency to terrify Christians, even the ones who go to church twice on Sunday. It's in Matthew 7. And it's, it's very scary for Pentecostals especially, right? Because Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Weren't there mighty works? So many amazing things took place in our midst did we not cast out demons in your name? These people are crying out to Jesus, saying, we did all the spiritual stuff. We did it all. 
And yet Jesus will tell them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I did not know you. Which, of course, as people begin to flesh this out, they try to figure out a way to frame it in a way that you can say, well, of course that's not talking about me. Of course that's not talking about us, right? This just doesn't work, right? These people did all these things, but like Jesus says, they didn't know me. Okay, that is not even remotely comforting because they thought they did know him. They thought they had a relationship with him. That's the thing that's so scary about this verse. It describes people just like me, just like us. And we think we're good, and then Jesus tells us we're not. But when you really, really look closely at this verse, you see a problem, at least I see a problem, that actually makes this weird, obscure passage very consistent with the rest of the gospel. It's right in the middle, and it's three very destructive, destructive, destructive small words. Did we not? Did we not? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? All these people are standing before Jesus and they're trying to get to him on account of something that they did. But if you stand on what you've done, you will stand alone. And if you stand alone, you're not going to make it. But on that day, I can tell you, if I'm weighed on account of what I did, I'm not going to make it. But thank God that the gospel is that on that day, I will not stand alone. Because God has accounted to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who suffered a sinner's death at the hand of sinners, who defeated death and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you are far from God today, God wants you to know. He wants you to come back to him. He wants you to have, he wants you to give your life to him. He wants you to come to Jesus. If you know that you're going in the wrong direction today, God wants you to repent. He wants you to turn around. He will meet you right where you are. But the first step is coming to terms with the fact that you are not as you should be. I know I'm not. Until you grasp the fact that Jesus will be there standing with you, you're going to spend your entire life trying to figure out what you can do to tip those scales in your favor. That is the heart of sacrifice. That is why people do it. God, I'll give you this so you can forgive me. God, I'll give this up so you'll rescue me. It can't be about fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And if you give your life to God out of fear of punishment, you will live your life for God out of fear of punishment. And that is a debilitated, crappy way to live. But perfect love casts out fear. And love is why we do what we do. It is love that put Jesus Christ on that cross. And until you can come to terms with the fact that you needed him to go to that cross and that he did an amazing act of love and he did it for you, you will spend your whole entire life saying, did we not? When the entire gospel is coming to terms with the fact that Jesus